Welcome to Managing Marketing, a weekly podcast where we discuss the issues and opportunities facing marketing, media and advertising with industry thought leaders and practitioners. Today, I have a very special guest because I'm sitting down with Davina Rooney, Chief Executive Officer of the Green Building Council of Australia. Welcome, Davina. Thank you so much for having me. And look, I say a special guest because I guess people listening to this podcast, Managing Marketing, would be going... What has someone that has a sort of construction, architecture and engineering focus have to do with marketing? But in actual fact, there's, uh, the, the purpose for wanting to have this conversation was really the huge inroads and continued work that you're doing with bringing about uh, sustainability and environmental change in the construction industry. Could you elaborate a little bit on the role of the Green Building Council? Yeah, so our purpose is to transition property in the built environment towards sustainability. So our entire focus is change management. So you talk about what that, how that relates to marketing. A lot of the people that you speak and listen to are um, on a journey with people to change their mind or consider a different perspective. Often when we're looking at how to transition property and construction towards sustainability, it's also a change journey. So there's a lot of alignment there. Now, I just want to pick up on that term sustainability because I've noticed that a lot of people are starting to question the definition. So what's your sort of operating definition of sustainability? So the the classic definition is, you know, a global definition that relates to the Brundtland definition about you know, meeting the needs of the planet today so we have enough for the future. However, I find more of a classic definition that has more resonance with people is taking after your own health and your family and community's health and then looking after the planet's health. Right. So it starts very much at as a personal level, a family level, then the and community. community. We find that if people aren't engaged in their own health and well-being, that they're less likely to be engaged in broader issues and also the broader environment. So if you look at people that are, you know, deeply passionate um, about the environmental movement, usually they've had a childhood playing with their community in the bush. You and I were talking earlier um, about the wonderful Girl Guide movement where I've been on the board of New South Wales and ACT Guides. A lot of that is building conservation through a love of nature and a desire for preservation for the natural environment, but also for the community. Mm. So how do we grow that actually by spending time and joy in those spaces? Okay, so when people think of construction, because, you know, when you drive past, you know, whether it's in a suburban street and there's a house yeah. being demolished or, uh, or you know, you drive past a huge uh, city development block, it doesn't really feel very you know, environmentally sustainable, <laughs> does it? No, and I, I think all great problems you know, start with a challenge. And the challenge for the built environment is property in construction in operation is 40% of the carbon emissions. And the materials they use are about half of those globally are put towards property and construction. So coming out and saying, you know, the pathway to Paris is paved with net zero buildings, as in highly efficient buildings powered by renewables built in the best way possible. If we can't move in property and construction, we can't move the globe. 
And so the role of an organisation like ours is to actually educate, work with people on things they could be doing differently, advocate, partner with government for that change and rate, which is to actually we do certifications that we call Green Star um, on better designed buildings in operation and construction and take some of the leading practices to look to mainstream them across Australia. And then really importantly, we work with everyone to make that happen. So we collaborate. Mm. It's interesting because um, I noticed in your description of mm. uh, construction, you were you extended it beyond the actual process of building to actually the use of the yeah. building beyond the actual construction process, you know, the, the idea of energy sustainability, uh, you know, and, and there'd be a lot of different issues there. There a huge number of issues. And so about 80% of the emissions are used in operation. Yeah. And so when we're constructing a building, one part is focusing on the construction practices, the waste practices. We have these sites recycling over 90%, you know, there's all these opportunities with how they complete their waste, how they run their processes, renewables on site. However, just looking at that process isn't enough when a huge amount is how the building is used in operation. And a lot of those decisions are made in the design and construction up front. So it's really taking a really long-term view to that process. So whether it's big construction sites or we're very focused on, you know, particularly after the pandemic, better housing for all Australians. Mm. It's um it's interesting because you know when we talk about net zero uh, emissions there is three scopes you know there's scope yep. one scope two and scope three and a lot of people I think are very comfortable with scope one and scope two it's this the scope three of the uh, upstream and downstream supply chain that yeah you know, when you start applying it to different uh, categories yep. it becomes quite complicated or complex for people. Now, in the building industry or construction, yeah. um, I imagine, and you've already touched on it, it's about all the materials upstream that you are sourcing yeah. and also downstream at the end use cons uh, consumption, isn't it? Yeah, so an operating building, scope one being what you burn on site, you know, or gas or refrigerants in a building, scope two being energy from the grid. So the energy we use in operation for buildings, predominantly scope one and two, but exactly as you point out, when we're talking about constructions of sites, that's all the upfront carbon emissions or embodied carbon in the materials, which is in that, you know, that very important scope three. And what one of the things that we do is we complete strategy, but we partner globally. You know, so it's recognised... We have um, the United Nations, we have COP26. A key focus on that, because of the points I raised earlier, is going to be on buildings and cities. And the World Green Building Council, who we partner with, one of my board is their chair, is incredibly focused on getting the buildings and cities focused because, as I mentioned, we need to have net zero pathways for those buildings. Otherwise, there isn't a pathway forward. Does it also extend to the lifetime of the building? I mean, because every building has a, you know, a lifespan, doesn't it, where eventually it either has to be completely renovated or torn down and, and reconstructed. Is is that as far as the, the view well, goes? So when you do a life cycle analysis, obviously you take a view on how long things last. I must say a wonderful boss of mine, Terry Raggett from Arab Associates in London, 
um, is incredibly focused on the design life. So when I speak to designers, they have this great concept that beautiful buildings are more sustainable because they get knocked down a lot less often. Mm. So a great, a fabulous building like the Colosseum, no one would consider removing something of that scale and grandeur, whereas, you know, an ugly, poorly designed two-storey walk-up, you know, that might be moved on. And so there's, you know, one of the things that's obviously incredibly hard to measure but makes people very passionate is to say that buildings that are designed with more beauty, more joy, better fit for purpose will stand the test of time because they'll have enduring needs. It is something about architecture as a profession that it's always had a balance you know, in, the, in the best examples of beauty and aesthetics, functionality and sustainability. From the early days, we refer, you know, to the architects of the founders of the built environment movement towards sustainability. You know, there's a lot of beautiful essays written in the 1970s about, you know, how do we exist in harmony and exploring the first of these concepts. And so over time, there's more engineering um, has been brought behind it. But, you know, we spend 90% of our time indoors. I mean, there's a famous quote from Winston Churchill about we shape our buildings and then they shape us. Mm. It's very fundamental that if we are going to lean towards a more sustainable future, that we're very focused in these areas. And it has an enormous impact on the environment, but also it has a critical role in people's health. The Climate Council put out a report in you know 2021 stating that Kids with asthma who live in buildings where you cook with gas and you heat with gas, that's as bad as someone passive smoking in the household. Right. Okay. I hadn't uh, heard of that previously. It's, it's interesting because there are such things as they call them uh, ill sick buildings or ill buildings that actually cause illness in the occupants. Absolutely. So you know, when we spend so much time indoors... Things like access to nature, daylight, views, air quality, moisture, all these things impact our well-being. But, you know, when you look at the other end of the scale, how cold it is in buildings. Mm. You know, there's a terrifying study coming out of Victoria that 87% of people who were presenting at emergency with hypothermia were found indoors. Mm. And it becomes really important because the most vulnerable are the least able to use services like air conditioning to, re, you know, to change the air temperature to improve poorly performing houses. Okay, so we've, we've touched on how you know, the architects and architecture as a profession has been very focused on sustainability and, and the environment and, and the, what's best for the, the people that are going to be occupying the building. I guess the next big uh, group in your group of stakeholders would be actually the developers, you know, the mm -hmm. people that are then either funding this and, and doing this for commercial reasons. Is and so the I'd say the architects led in the early days, but these days it's very developer, owner, investor led. That's where really? we're seeing a huge amount of the movement. So within Australia, the developers and owners have been number one on the Dow Jones Sustainability Index for property or the Global Real Estate Sustainability Benchmark for over 10 years. Wow. Because I was going to say, was this an open door that you're pushing on in a way? Because, you know, it's usually the excuses we hear in lots of different categories 
is that, oh, it's the financials that stop us being sustainable. It's the financials that stop us embracing technology to make us more environmentally sound. But in this case, you're saying that it's actually the owners and developers, the the money responsible people that are actually pushing this trend. So, So the investors are incredibly focused on climate change. You know, there's a huge focus. The money has moved. BlackRock made announcements that the money has moved, that it's all about sustainable futures in that space. A lot of long-term owners, it would be, you know, the financials of highly efficient buildings powered by renewables is extraordinary. So one of our partners, the GPT, they took their wholesale office fund net zero last year on about a $10 billion portfolio. Wow. They're saving $10 million a year. And so that's a combination of their efficiency work, which is about 45% of their savings. The next chunk is renewable energy. They thought that would cost them more, but with the way the energy market's moving by doing smarter procurement together with renewables, they saved in that area. And their last 10% has been about buying um, offsets um, for other projects to make up their last piece. Now, they're incredibly focused on more efficiency, more renewables, removing gas, so that that becomes a smaller and smaller part of their mix. But um, we have to get out the new message that sustainability is the new business driver. This is what customers want. You know, surveys in Australia show that 80% of Australians are concerned about these issues. Mm. We need to actually connect the business narrative and drive this at scale. So you say in my sector, is it an open door? There's passionate parts of industry that want to drive this. But if we want to take this to scale and change everything, there are certainly enough closed doors for me to spend my time on. Um, But what's really important is that if we want to change everything, we have to take everyone. And so it's not enough to have you know, the top tier development market driving in this area. We've been doing a huge amount of work with social infrastructure and government Mm. because fabulous to have sustainable high-end offices. This is not healthy for the wealthy. We want this to be in the heartbeat of every school design. We want this in a hospital that you, you know, walk into. Research shows that if you're recovering in hospital and you have better access to daylight and the air quality is better, some access to nature and views, you know it yourself, if you're in a dark, dowdy room, you don't feel very good. When you're in one that's vibrant, you feel more lively and more engaged, and that's part of the healing process. Is some of this, though, going to be a natural trickle-down effect? And I know the term trickle-down economically is is uh, uh, controversial, but in a way, you know, we do have landmark buildings. You know, the idea of it being a landmark is because people look towards it and and see it as an example of, you know, best practice. Uh, Is that what we're seeing is sort of it started perhaps 10 years ago with this view of let's make the larger projects, but then the lessons from there, do you see that trickling down into things like schools, even homes and the like? So we're seeing a lot of change, but we would say that if you want to change, you know, the, the other challenges we're seeing, the effects of climate change ramp up really quickly. So if we had another 50, 60 years, maybe we could trickle down slowly. However, we would say because this has to happen and has to happen fast, we talk about a carrot, a stick and a tambourine approach. Right, okay. So um, we run a rating system, Green Star. 
We know that people that use that rating system, they get better values for their buildings. People want to stay longer. They get better financial returns, 13% better financial returns, and they invest 1% to 3% to get the buildings there. That's a pretty strong carrot. Then on the stick side, I've mentioned the work within the policy space. What we need to do is lift up the voluntary standards with the carrot so we can bring in the stick so that we can change the construction code. So in 2019, we had a 35% movement in the construction code for everything other than residential. For the next construction code, NCC 2022, there's a big conversation about should we have better houses for all Australians? Makes sense, doesn't it? It makes sense, but it's incredibly controversial because the first cost for doing something for the whole of life is always slightly higher. Mm. If you're going to put in better glass, more insulation, set the home up to be healthier and more comfortable, there will be a one-off cost. However, that cost will have value. So the Bank of England has done studies and people that have more efficient homes default on their home loans less. Yeah. Because they have less costs and challenges. Yeah, so operational costs are less overall. Yeah, so there's less pressure on a household. So we talk about the carrot, the stick, and then there's the tambourine that I'm sure all the marketers are aware of. How do we take these, you know, boring but important areas and keep it top of mind? So we run global leadership programs for groups to commit to net zero for 2030 and have been aligning that with the UN's race to zero for COP26 So it's all about how do you take something and actually make it really interesting to keep talking about it and doing every day. And I'm very excited that in Australia, we have over 25 partners in that space. We have more and more leaning in and they're some of the biggest property groups globally. And so what's really critical is that we find a way that we celebrate, you know, individual leadership with a carrot. We drive that to scale through a stick and we keep everyone engaged to talk about it through a tambourine where we try and create engagement in this space because these are long-term journeys. It's not a fix and forget. We need to be sustaining interest on a long-term scale and that's how we'll go from some of the biggest of buildings to um, some of the homes and schools. So I'm personally incredibly heartened by some of the work we've been doing with government. Um, There's recent announcements about the Olympics for 2032 in Brisbane, and they have a really high commitment to sustainability. Things like that, or when we worked with the Opera House to um, increase their ambition towards driving sustainability through that building, I think it makes an enormous amount of change. Well, that's a great example, isn't it? Because the Opera House was designed and, and back in the 60s. 1960s. And when that was done, it was seen as a huge, you know, futuristic building. You know, in fact, some of the the uh, construction requirements were things that had never even been contemplated mm. when it was built. But perhaps that the idea of the environmental sustainability of that building wasn't a high consideration in the 1960s. But at your point earlier about, you know, when there's something that's aesthetically beautiful then you're not going to tear it down to rebuild something that's sustainable. You're going to look for the ways of making it more sustainable. Absolutely. So I worked for engineering firm Arup, who globally came to Australia to solve the technical problems associated with the Opera House. That was what brought them here. Um, And I think there's a real how do we solve these complex challenges? So... When I speak to the, you know, the CEO of that entity, Louise, she talks about how we do things in a way that's tangible and real. So they're a net zero building certified by Climate Active. You know, they use renewables. 
but they do things like when they're cleaning the opera forecourt, they use like bicarbonate of soda. When they're cleaning the brass handrails, they do so with olive oil. Mm. When they incorporate their programming, they look at bringing Indigenous theatre to the forefront. There's a like a whole spectrum and part of their role is about how they operate their own buildings better but how they use their role on the Australian and, in fact, the global stage to make that more accessible to the many. Mm. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, the other thing I'm hearing in our conversation, Devena, mm. is when we de- uh, started developing uh, the CO2 counter for marketing back in 2007, a lot of it, and this was to actually measure greenhouse gas emissions from all marketing activities. Mm-hmm. The focus back then was all about offsetting. And what I'm hearing now is the same belief that we had back then and continue to have today, which is that offsetting is not the solution, that actually reducing, identifying, reducing and getting it to the lowest possible point, then you may offset the part that, you know, there's always going to be some component but achieving that as small as possible is actually the long-term sustainable solution. That's the long-term sustainable solution because if you imagine if we all head for net zero, then everyone needs to use those. But offsets, we need to look at, you know, there's a lot of global papers coming out internationally about nature-based solutions, new biodiversity, the lungs of the earth. Mm -hmm. Those will be funded in a lot of initial stages through the offset credits that we're talking about. So they have a really important role in this ecosystem But what's really great is if people, exactly as you say, minimise and reduce first and then um, really engage in the offset market after they've done that. However, that market, you know, when you look at Qantas's offset program, they're doing incredible work with Indigenous rangers right near the barrier reef. Mm -hmm. You know, so those programs are an important part of the globe's solutions and there are parts of the economy that will struggle to access easier solutions. So when we talk to our partners in concrete and steel, they need new technologies that don't exist yet to become net zero. We call them the hard to abate sectors. Mm. So at the moment, what they're doing is using some of the efficiency pathways, they're using the renewables in buildings, and then they still have a large gap. And the aim is to work with those sectors to drive nature-based solutions or increasing the biodiversity of the globe. Yeah. And at the same time, invest in the technology innovations that are going to overcome those those huge gaps as yeah, well. We, we need to close the gaps because there's so many of them globally that for us to get to net zero 2050 as a society, we need to be doing all the easy things before 2030. And so buildings, operational energy clearly falls in that space and then be spending a lot of time on the difficult sectors, a lot of which are about materials production so both of which, um, you know, fall in the areas that we're incredibly passionate about. And exactly like you say, those overlap with the areas that you've been tracking carbon within marketing. Yeah. Uh, well, and because one of the obstacles that we struck was that if you just look at offsetting, it becomes a cost of business, whereas reduction actually becomes part of becoming more efficient. Mm. Yeah, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of the reduction is actually removing waste that's almost inherent in any process or any um, uh, system is identifying it. And the first step is identifying where it is. You know, there's in, what what gets measured gets managed. The old expression. <laughs> 
that this comes down to. But yeah, a lot of what we find is a lot of the first 30% of wastage that people improve in their efficiency part of their sustainability journey comes from looking at it with an incredible focus through a new lens. And so, you know, some would say that the first 20 or 30% ends up being the good design, you know, that we've sometimes lost as the world has moved faster. Mm. Look, um, just to go back a step, you know, and you talked about carrot stick and tambourine, right? Yeah. Which I imagine uh, aligns very well with on your website. It says rate, advocate, educate. Mm-hmm. And you also mentioned collaborate. Yeah. Right? So, so. The uh, Green Star ratings, in a way, is uh, encouragement. You know, it's the carrot. It is absolute encouragement for people to do better in that space and celebrate the outcomes. Like, how fabulous if that home that's being designed, you know, in your street is going to be a net zero home that's healthy for the occupants and, you know, designed for the future, not increasing the urban heat island effect, great plants. How fabulous if that was the case. Okay. Advocate is working with government, is it? Mm -hmm. So um, in 2019, we launched a net zero trajectory for um, the built environment with Minister Taylor and the Property Council. So importantly, property is a little bit complicated, we all know. So there's different drivers at a federal level where it's often about setting the National Construction Code at a state level where it's often about the procurement in critical areas like schools and hospitals or the local council where planning comes in place. Mm. So they're different toolkits for different areas. But we spend a lot of time working with our partners in government on two things, how we strengthen policies in our space, but the other being about how we work with them to do better with their own infrastructure and their own buildings. Government collectively is about 30% of the land of the tenants in the Australian property market. That's no small amount in procurement power. And when the money walks, often we see the kind of change that we're looking for. My God, you have all three levels of government that you need to uh, to advocate to. Look, it's pretty complex. There's over 650 councils. Mm. Um, but, you know, the Green Building Council turns 20 in 2022. So it's really important that we use our long-term partnerships. So the Commonwealth is funding us to help local councils better incorporate national mechanisms and increase their awareness. So we're seeing more partnership across multiple levels. But I won't say that it's not complex. There's over 650 councils in Australia. And those councils are as diverse as, you know, the eastern suburbs and, you know, outback Australia. You know, where there's totally different requirements and and, uh, expectations. Yeah, and that's why it's really important that there's federal work on where the National Construction Code is and then we use some of the leading councils to pilot what the future could look like and take those lessons and, and then deliver those back in the code. We've got to look at those as different symbiotic parts. So, you know, some of the leading councils, City of Sydney, City of Melbourne, have committed to net zero South Australia's bought its large renewable plan for Adelaide. And so we have to take the exemplars of leadership and actually use those to partner to drive and show what's possible in those cases before we take them to scale. So they have their different role. And then you've got uh, educate. Mm-hmm. So uh, what's, what's the primary um, focus there? So for us, that's about training industry for all the complex issues that we're talking about. You know, whether it's net zero pathways, climate resilience, circular economy, all those areas. So that takes the form of courses, you know, about Green Star, 
or we run our own industry conferences, or we consider it broadly, you know, as sessions like today. Mm, fantastic. And um, collaboration must be an important part because you, you've got such a diverse group of stakeholders, don't you? Incredibly. So we work with everyone from, you know, constructors, contractors, building manufacturers, owners, developers, government at all the different levels, universities, and the other thing that's really interesting is that GreenStar, the rating tool we use, we also partner with the New Zealand Green Building Council to use it and the South African Green Building Council. And so there's a collection of um, different Green Building Councils globally that comes to the World Green Building Council and we partner together. So, um, and then we partner with other rating tools in the space. Um, you know, the World Building Institute, the International um, IWBI, who have their rating tool well, you know, I sit on their Global Governance Council. Sustainability is a team sport and we've got to work together to try to simplify because otherwise we can't hit the important goals for tomorrow. So um, in that, uh, just going through rate, advocate and educate, where's the stick come in? Because I'm not, I'm, I'm seeing all this mm. as very positive. You know, and it's encouraging and it's coordinating and it's it's helping so people stick, act in a very positive way, yeah. is the stick non-compliance. The stick is when you advocate, you ask for change and you ask for higher standards. Right. So when we ask for better standards for all Australians, that notes that if we built poor quality, cheaper buildings, we will set up, you know, intergenerational poverty. You know, there's been some really important work by a community coalition showing that energy poverty in Australia is real. Mm -hmm. That means we've got to build better buildings. The only way to get everyone to simultaneously build better buildings is the stick. We increase the construction standards for Australia. Yeah. And Australia is going to have some really important conversations about how important that is. And in a highly regulated country like Australia, if people buy a new house and it's designed to a certain standard, they think it's good. Uh, that in Sydney means you can still have single glazed windows, have condensation on the inside and potentially mould in your curtains and furniture. I remember growing up uh, in Victoria yeah. and they had uh, houses with this uh, big uh, brass medallion which was it's an all-electric home. It yep. was really interesting that it was seen back then that, you know, driving this idea of electricity at a time when almost 100% of Victoria's electricity was coming from brown coal in your lawn. Isn't it amazing how in one lifetime the world can change so much? And potentially come back to the same place because we will again see Victorians celebrating all-electric homes but powered by renewables this time. Exactly. So, you know, the future's often oversold and underimagined. <laughs> and that's where marketing comes in. That's where marketing <laughs> yeah. comes in. I, like, I think there's a genuine opportunity where we look at what consumers want. They want a movement towards a more sustainable future I think marketers are such an important vehicle to help them find the how in their everyday decisions and include that as a consideration. So, you know, good communication strategies are about stories that people want to be told in imaginative ways. And I'm very hopeful that we'll see industry driving in that direction. And I must tell you that the most inspiring stories of the future won't be told by a boring engineer like me. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think you're uh, underplaying uh, your uh, potential in telling in um, amazing stories. 
I just want to know, part of this is overcoming this almost preconception that this direction that the consumers, people want, is actually about financial cost. Mm -hmm. Because almost every example in this conversation, you've talked about, yeah, it may cost more initially. You may need to invest, but it pays off in the longer term. We have to move to a value conversation rather than a first cost conversation. And what's really interesting is you see people, you know, in in the luxury car market, um, it's a value conversation. Mm. Even, Even in the way to a moderate car market, it's a value conversation. When you look at people's phones, tablets, you know, all of those are a value conversation. Why would you have value conversations in the lowest form of depreciating asset in your life and not have that conversation in the highest value accretive assets in your life that you're going to own for a lot longer than the new iPhone? Mm. So I think part of this is how we change the narrative to how people think about what value looks like over the long term for some of the biggest assets they'll ever engage with and where they want to work, live and play for their own lives because one of the huge drivers we're seeing in the different markets is how people want to live their lives. You know, they were seeing the drivers with the millennials and they'll move to companies depending on their value propositions. Mm. And so actually being able to demonstrate the work that's being done in this area and a lot of emissions are held in property footprints is a key part of the opportunity. Devena, I really love what you just said there where you talked about consumers choosing based on a value proposition because there's a lot of talk in marketing around purpose, you know, this idea of corporate purpose. But in actual fact, the only function of purpose is to actually become the stimulus for developing and delivering value, isn't it? There's no point having a purpose if there is no value proposition that comes off that Hmm. to drive consumers and, in fact, all stakeholders to it. Yeah, I think there's some really important work, um, the shared value work that came out of um, Harvard in about 2012, Porter and Kramer, that looks about bringing purpose together with financial viability and talking about delivering purpose with profit and then deliberately growing that so you can deliver more purpose. I think it's a really important shared value, how you can deliver value, you know, to your shareholders, but really importantly to the broader community and bring those constructs together. The reason why I like to talk about them together is because often you'll see people with a phenomenal idea, but if they can't find a way to find that aligned area, they can never drive it to scale. So a lot of the work that we do at the Green Building Council is everyone we work with wants to do the right thing, but it's about finding the different business models so they can actually take it to greater scale and therefore implement more change. Look, I've just noticed the time. This has been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to sit down and share the work that you've been doing with the Green Building Council of Australia. Um, just a, a final question. Uh, you've seen the, the countdown clock for climate change. We've got about six years before 1.5 degrees, a longer for uh, two degrees. If you were a gambling person, which one do you think we're going to achieve? Thank you.